Hello and welcome to the symposium. Today we're joined by Harry. Hello there. And we're going to talk about Kant's deontological ethics. Now, Kant gets a sort of a bad name, but also some people love him. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Some people really love him. Some people really hate him. It's a bit hard to be neutral with him because there are all sorts of issues that piss off people or make it, make them really prone to liking him. Yes, I will say, to preface this, uh, the most that I have interacted with Kant is occasionally walking into a Waterstones and looking at the philosophy that they have and noticing that there is a large tome, uh, Critique of Pure Reason, I believe, yeah. is the one that they always have in stock, and it's absolutely enormous. Uh, picking that up and going, eh, I might read this one day, and then putting it back and never buying it, because it seems like a very dense thick tome full of uh, quite difficult concepts, I would imagine. And also I'm aware of his categorical imperative, which seems to be a sort of universal rule in the way that I've been, uh, I've had it described that you shouldn't behave in a way towards one person that you wouldn't behave in the way to, to that you wouldn't expect to have to behave to anybody else in the world. Um, and also that he was a critique, uh, critic of the Enlightenment who was trying to stop some of its excesses from what I've been told. I don't know how accurate that is. This is one of the major interpretive questions. Some people say that Kant represents the pinnacle of the Enlightenment, a grand synthesis of the Enlightenment. Others think that he is basically the departure. Hmm. He represents the point of departure. I don't think that we can ever solve that debate, but I see respectable people arguing for each position. So I think that each way of looking at things is respectable and has lots of things going for it. I'm more of the idea, I, I subscribe more to the first idea. I think that he is more of the pinnacle of the Enlightenment. And if we look at, it depends on what we understand as Enlightenment. But we will... We will talk about this another time. So Kant, yes, does... Oh, uh, before, before we go any further, uh, when you were giving your opening monologue to this, you mentioned the word deontological. For the benefit of myself, I have a rough idea of what that word means, but just to clarify for myself and any audience members who might not, would you mind explaining Great. and defining that, please? And th thank you. So deontology has to do with an ethics that is closely attached to the notion of duty. So you could say that according to each approach to philosophy, you will see some key terms. And these are the terms that ethicists usually treat as fundamental in their theories. And they try to explain everything in terms of them. So you could say that deontological ethics is really attached to the notion of duty. Let me just give you an example. You have people like Aristotle and Plato who are talking about virtue. And they think that virtue and pleasure are basically distinct. But you also have people like Bentham, who is a hedonistic utilitarian. And hedonistic utilitarianism places the idea of goodness first and conceives of goodness as pleasure and understands virtue in terms of the kind of behavior that promotes pleasure. So you have two completely different ways of approaching the same term. Someone like Bentham would say, for instance, 
Virtue is that which promotes the kind of behavioral disposition that promotes pleasure, whereas Aristotle and Plato and Kant would not view it that way. When, when Bentham is talking about pleasure, how broadly is he using that term? Would he be willing to sign up for the 24-7 mind coom machine? Is that what he would be doing? Or would he limit it to a more strict definition of pleasure as being something that would be uh, more socially conservative, perhaps? I do not have a very informative answer at the minute, mm -hmm. but it seems to me that it's more specific to the body, that pleasure is bodily pleasure. So he might be up for the coom machine. That is what, yes, that is why there is an expression, I think, that if the occasion is right, no, 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 if it promotes pleasure, pushpin is more valuable than Shakespeare. That's, I think that's a horrendous thing to say, but this is associated with the Benthamite view of looking at things. So, back to Kant. Kant is someone who is a, trying to put forward an ethics that is centered around the idea of duty. Now, what is duty? That's a very big question. Does this make more sense? Yes, yes, so far. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the book we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, which is essentially the easiest access into his ethical thinking. He had several books, like The Critique of Pure Reason that you mentioned. That is a very dense book. Yes, I could tell just looking at it. Didn't I, I flipped through it once and I believe there was tables dissecting particular abstract ideas and their relations yeah. to one another. So clearly a very astute and intelligent man. Uh, but if you ask me to sit down and read something enjoyable, it probably wouldn't be my first choice. Okay. So he had also the critique of practical reason, the critique of judgment. These are the three critiques of Kant. Then the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals that we're going to talk about today the metaphysics of morals and religion within the bounds of reason alone. So he had more works than that, obviously, but these are some of his major works. Now, let us say something. He was born in 1724 and died in 1804. I think he lived his whole life in Königsberg in Prussia. I think it's today's Kaliningrad. Mm. And he never traveled far away. I think the maximum distance from his house he ever left was 80 kilometers. He never went further than A real homebody then. Yeah, he was a real localist. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> we, we've mentioned this when we were talking about this prior to a recording, but in the Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt's book, he brings up Kant very briefly when he's talking about the autism spectrum and puts Kant just outside of the autism spectrum. I forget who it is that he puts directly in the middle of it, in the center, but he describes Kant's routine, that he was a strict man of strict routine, who would do the same things at the same time every single day. He would wake up at the same time, have his coffee at the same time, go for a walk down the same route at the same time. And that worries me because prior to moving to Swindon, that's the kind of routine that I had going for myself. <laughs> but to be fair, I think a regimented routine can help to balance and structure the mind and refine the mental processes. So to be able to write such 
large and dense tomes as he has, then it makes sense why he would um, why he would have such a regimented routine. So I think it is being said there are some personal anecdotes about his life. Mm. I think it is said that people in Kennigsberg were winding their watches according to where he was <laughs> during his walk. He was he was walking the same route every day. I respect it, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Although you did mention that in his personal correspondence, he had a he had a shockingly good way with the ladies. Yeah, he could, but he, he, I think they were pissing him off. And there was one uh, particular, I don't remember her name, but she was constantly asking him about love and ro romance and stuff. And I think uh, after two, cor two responses of his, he basically got bored and started ignoring her. <laughs> 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 another personal the anecdote another yeah another personal anecdote is i think he was making really good homemade mustard all right and his friends were really loving it and they were visiting his house and it, even though he wasn't a well-traveled man he had a really good talent of describing places because i think he was reading travel books or something and he could describe really well lots of cities that he never went to but they were getting the idea of how they look like so i think he was describing rome athens things like that again take that with a pinch of salt because there are many personal anecdotes about his life well it certainly sounds like he was a man with a very comprehensive inner life and a very active yeah. imagination who who's able to as you say describe these cities in great detail purely from mental pictures that he has gotten from descriptions and travel books and possibly sketches, I would imagine, as well. Yes. So his main influences were David Hume, that's the main influence, Leibniz and Christian Wolff. But most people talk about Hume as being the major influence. You could say that in the critique of pure reason, he is basically reacting against all three of them. But... We should keep that for another discussion. <laughs> okay, he is called the pioneer of transcendental idealism and also described as the pioneer of German idealism. Personally, I think that's a big stretch mm. because German idealism is reacting against Kant. I was going to say, I'm aware mainly through Rory, I think, of German idealism being much more uh, in the vein of someone like Schopenhauer. Um, I wouldn't place him as a German idealist because Schopenhauer was a Kantian and he absolutely loathed the three figures we are associating with German idealism, Fichte, Schelling and Hegel. He absolutely <laughs> loathed them. And one of his criticisms of them was that they, didn't under, they, didn't, they did not absorb Kant's insights. Anyway. Again, you have people saying, you know, there's the gang of four, Kant, Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel, and somehow they think that Kant belongs to that tradition. Personally, I think that's a bit of a stretch. But transcendental idealism, is that something that you would agree with? Uh, not exactly. And this is where I think that his philosophy is showing something that is a bit of it's not very helpful. I think that he tried to answer Hume mm. and he tried to answer a skeptic. Now, I think that this can never be done successfully. 
because the skeptic can always ask why. You can never convince a committed skeptic. Kant still wanted to go so far as to commit uh, to convince the the skeptic, and he was trying to say that even doubt requires some presuppositions, and he was really trying to overcome traditional metaphysics because he thought that traditional metaphysics is not immune to skepticism. So transcendental idealism is something like his effort to overcome traditional metaphysics without falling prey to skepticism. Essentially what, it, what he says is that traditional rationalists were correct in thinking that we can have knowledge of necessary facts, that Hume denied that, but he thinks that they were wrong in thinking that this represents the world as it is independently of the mind perceiving it, which essentially means that there is a split between how the mind perceives the world and the world as it is. All right. And these structures that are necessary are mental structures. So, for instance, he would say it is necessary that, that objects are in space and time. But it is necessary not because the world is such that it is extended in space and in time, but the mind sees things as if they are like that. Mm. So that's, I think, one of the major issues with Kant. Kantians would say, obviously, that their framework is overall better than a traditional metaphysical one. I opt for the traditional metaphysical one because I think that ultimately Kant sees everything with an as-if clause. And as you will see here, mm. when he's talking about morality, he says that we can never know that free will exists, and free will is the presupposition of morality, but we need to see the world as if we have free will, which for me seems a bit thin. You so cannot structure, for me, a, a significantly binding moral system that is based on, as, on an as-if. Okay, so that sounds like interpreting the entirety of... Um, reality through a kind of Pascal's wager? Is that what it is? Where act, act as if God is real, even if you don't necessarily sincerely believe in him. Kant is interpreting the world through that kind of lens. You must act in the world as if these moral presuppositions are strictly true. Yes, I think you're right. And I think he also mentions, I don't know if that is in metaphysics of morals or religion within the bounds of reason alone, that the idea of an afterlife is also a central presupposition of morality. So behave in I, such... I, I'm not entirely certain, but I, I think I have the impression that he did say this. So be behave in such a way that you can be certain that you're... Well, behave in such a way as if all of your actions will be judged by higher power exactly. who is going yeah. to determine your fate once you've passed on. Yes, but that is the issue. He thought and that you can never claim metaphysical knowledge. You can never say that, for instance, you can use your mental faculties in order to establish metaphysical propositions such as God exists or mm. God does not exist or free will exists or... Free will does so not I, exist. I, I can see what you mean by when you say that he was trying to... I can see why you believe that he was a pinnacle 
of the Enlightenment because by the sounds of it, like you say, it sounds like he was trying to shore up as much as possible the concepts that were being put forward by people like Hume and that he was taking the skeptic's view of the pure subjectivity of any and all interaction that humanity has with all of the concepts that it generates. He's trying to take that skepticism and synthesize it with a more objective viewing of reality. And to be honest, that makes some sense to me because I also, on a certain level, subscribe to the idea that there is a physical world um, and there are objective realities of that world. For instance, as we're recording this, I am sat in a chair, I can touch this chair, but also that, to a certain extent, the only meaning that we can put into the world can be taking those objective facts and and uh, viewing them through our own subjective lens. Because re realistically speaking, I do believe that we filter everything through our own perception. So I can understand the synthesis that he's trying to create there. Essentially, he had a very big problem to solve, a very interesting equation. So you could say that there were interesting factors that he needed to account for. Number one was the impressive success of Newtonian physics. So he thought that basically Newtonian mechanics does describe how the universe operates. And it commanded a kind of agreement that was simply not present in philosophy or natural philosophy or metaphysics before that. So the question was, how can we have such knowledge? But he is clearly understanding that there is an issue and a conflict with morality and a, a universe that operates in a Newtonian mechanistic manner. And you can say his major, his major task was to show how you can have both, how you can reconcile both. How can you explain on the one hand the impressive success of Newtonian mechanics in predicting the movement of celestial bodies, on the one hand, and how we can keep morality intact. So, while also answering the skeptic, but that, that is a bit implied, because the skeptic would say, you never really know that. He would say, well, it's clear, it, it works, look at it. So, he was trying to solve that equation, and he thought that people like Leibniz and Christian Wolff and traditional metaphysics, metaphysicians were basically creating a world that was, in a sense, you, wait, let, let me rephrase. He was thinking that the method of traditional metaphysics led to irreconcilable disagreements. So, for instance, this is, I think, a section in the Critique of Pure Reason where he could say, for instance, if you look at how metaphysicians are arguing with each other, you will see, number one, that they never agree, and that if they start from different starting points, they yield inconsistent conclusions. For instance, mm. you can argue both that the world had a beginning, but also that the world didn't have a beginning, that the world is eternal, mm. depending on the first principles you start. And he would say things like, that Hume also points out that if you see a traditional metaphysics, it has to start with some s starting points that metaphysicians take as intuitively true, mm. but it never generates agreement. Well, I suppose this would be where someone like Jonathan Haidt's idea of 
um, moral foundations come into it that each individual, whether you want to attribute it to their, um, their genetics, the culture that they were raised in, some kind of environmental factors, will have a priori presuppositions that they bring into any encounter that they have with reality. And so that level of subjectivity is why, say, you can have two separate people with the same set of facts who come to wildly different conclusions on this. And this is, say, for instance, the conservative leftist split, where, for instance, I think I've used this example on the podcast before, you could have a Chesterson's fence type scenario where two people observe that a fence Let's, let's use this as a broad metaphor for a border, for instance. A fence has some structural weaknesses in it and isn't doing the job that it should. The leftist looks at that and goes, well, see, the fence is not perfect and therefore can never be perfect, and so we should tear the whole thing down. Why are we keeping the people on the other side of the fence out anyway? And the person on the more conservative end of the spectrum can look at it and go, while this fence can never be perfect, we should still take the time to fix it and shore it up as much as possible. So you can have those two people, once again, they're both interacting with the same objective reality, yes. coming to wildly different conclusions, purely off of their a priori assumptions. Yes. Something to add here, I think you're correct, but I think also Kant would view that presupposition in a different way than mm. people like Jonathan Haidt or Jordan Peterson, because I think that they are basically trying to base it on biology. And Kant would say that that is not what is ultimately going to help. I have some charts that will help on this. So I think basically Kant would give a different idea of what the a priori is mm -hmm. and how it features in a thinking. Because it seems to me that people who are nowadays talking about a priori presuppositions in our thinking are usually giving a biological account of them. They could say that, for instance, our brain is hardwired due to biological reasons to think this way. But I think that Kant would say that that is something like a metaphysical claim that you cannot ultimately establish. And it I, is... I would disagree with him on that, but carry on. Okay, okay. Anyway, so let us move, sorry, let us move to some common syllogisms. And this may be a bit, may seem a bit abstract or weird, mm. but I think it is actually really helpful. All right. Because ultimately, the Kant is someone who, if approached from the correct angle, makes way more sense. So think of guitarists. You like guitarists? All right, now you've got my attention, yeah. Okay, so there are several kinds of guitarists. Some are really emotional, wouldn't you say so? Classic example, David Gilmore, everyone throws him out as the premier uh, emotional guitarist, yes. Okay, and there are others who are very, very technical and very rarely show emotion. Uh, Tosin Abassi, no disrespect to him, he's an excellent guitarist, but I never get much emotion from his playing, yeah. Okay, so Kant belongs to the second category, okay? He is almost never emotional. There are a, a case, there is a case or two where he tries to appeal to emotion, but at the end of the day, for him, it's 
all about systematizing what he's talking about. So he's a philosophical technician. Yes. And he essentially thinks that reason is all about order and structure. And he is trying to create a system and try to show how each thing features in that system. All right. So when, when he was devising this system where he was systematizing morals and such, was he intending for this to create a system whereby uh, a kind of universal man could abide by these ethics and be able to live a good life in much the way that you talk about how um, Aristotle was trying to devise an ethics for which you could live a good life? Or was he doing it purely as an intellectual exercise in response to Hume and other philosophers? I do not think he just did it as a mental exercise. He did uh, care a lot about morals, and he thought that there is a problem with common sense, that it is very frequently confused. Mm. So he would say that most people do have a lot of good ideas about morality, but they are confused in how these ideas fit together. And he thought that unless we find the supreme principle of morality, morals are prone to corruption because we don't have guidance. We will talk a lot about it. I have mm. slides that you have anticipated, but I want to show you exactly how things fit here. So I want to show you two practical syllogisms that you could say lots of people are making. Okay, so number one, if you tell Josh that there is whiskey in the living room, you would be telling him something that is not true. Deliberately telling people things that are not true amounts to lying to them. We have these two premises. Hmm. Therefore, you ought to abstain from telling Josh that there is whiskey in the living room. Do you think that's okay? Uh, you've already told me a little bit about this one, so I can head it off at the pass somewhat. Um, there is an assumption yep. that is being jumped here, jumped to here, uh, and it's not stated, which is that you, the assumption is lying is bad and something that you should not do. So there's a more basic assumption in this statement, uh, or at least in the conclusion, because it's saying that, well, if you, you ought to abstain from telling Josh that there is whiskey in the living room because it's lying to him, therefore, the base assumption is that lying is wrong and something you shouldn't do. Yes. And that's very important to bear in mind, okay? Because you'll see that this is essentially the problem that Hume highlighted, and Kant is trying to respond also to that problem. So, the second syllogism. If, if you want to become rich, you have to increase the amount of money you possess. Taking coins from Rory's wallet will increase the amount of money you possess. Not telling Rory you are taking coins from his wallet amounts to stealing. Therefore, you ought not to take Rory's coins even if you want to get rich. Once again, similar thing. You're assuming that stealing is bad. Yes. So. This is one of the issues with common sense, as Hume and Kant will say, that most people, we have a really good idea of morals, and our moral sentiments are well aligned to reality, but they would say that we have a very confused way of thinking about them. And we need a really good story 
a really good account of how morality fits into our lives. Because if we don't have it, unless we have it, our morals are prone to corruption. Now, let me show you what Hume says here. This is the famous problem with not uh, with us not being able to derive a note from an is, mm. which is essentially what happens in the previous syllogisms. He says, in every system of morality which I have hitherto met with, I have always re remarked that the author proceeds for some time in the ordinary way of reasoning and establishes the being of a god or makes observations concerning human affairs, where all of a sudden I'm surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions is and is not, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with an ought or an ought not. This change is imperceptible, but is, however, of the last consequence. For as this ought or ought not expresses some new relation of affirmation, it is necessary that it should be observed and explained, and at the same time that a reason should be given for what seems altogether inconceivable, for how this relation can be a deduction from others which are entirely different from it. So, this is a very fancy way of saying that if you try to think of moral conclusions, of moral precepts, as more the conclusions of a moral syllogism or of a syllogism, then you have invalid syllogisms if you don't have premises that refer to an obligation. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.